With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Welcome to Latina to Latina, a bustle podcast. I'm your host, Alicia Menendez. My grandmother taught me nothing in the kitchen, in the home. And she was really intentional about that. And when my grandfather would complain about me not being able to do anything in the home, she would always remind him, I was like, she doesn't have to because she's going to be a professional one day. You are just listening to Daisy Auger Dominguez. She is a senior vice president at Viacom. You know, the parent company for MTV, BET, and Comedy Central. Daisy's work focuses on diversity and inclusion, words that have become so trendy they've almost lost their meaning. But Daisy's passion for these issues is real, and what she has to say about them might surprise you. Let's talk about what you do, because I'm intrigued by it, but I don't understand it. <laughs> so I'm going to read you something from, I believe this is your LinkedIn page. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, where it says, you are a multi-industry global leader with proven success leading enterprise human capital transformations through people, culture, and social impact practices. That in means, English. <laughs> that means that I have worked in three different industries, finance, <laughs> media, entertainment, and technology. Um, it means that I work with people, the human capital transformation. The work that I do is around change management. Um, diversity and inclusion fundamentally at the end of the day is around changing how people's behaviors, actions, systems, and processes operate. Because the companies and organizations that we work with were not built to be truly inclusive. They were built and designed by folks many, many years ago to help those that were there succeed without a lens on what diversity of thought, experience, and background will look like. And so I always tell folks that the work that I do fundamentally changes a business structure. If we do it well, if we do it well, and it changes it to better outcomes, better financial performance, and better outcomes for every human in the organization. So all those fancy words means that I've worked globally, I've worked across three different industries, and I've focused all my work on people, processes, and behaviors. Does that help? (laughs) 
Sort of. Okay. But, but you're, I'm still, you're still looking at me like, nah. Well, that's just that's a huge proposition, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, the, oh, the yeah. Constitution wasn't written with people like us in mind. Yes. So how do you actually change those corporate cultures? One day at a time. I mean, really, I, I tell my talent acquisition team, we change the DNA of this company one hire at a time. We need to really upskill folks. And by upskilling, I mean that we need to really help folks understand and build their own narrative, not a narrative that's imposed on them, but a narrative that feels right to them. And everyone has an insider-outsider story. Everyone has a time where they haven't been you know, felt excluded, even the most powerful folks, where there's a moment where they haven't been part of the mainstream and the, and the decision-making part and, and how that feels and how that impacts decisions. And when people start recognizing that we bring all of that every day Mm -hmm. and the decisions that we make are not as meritocratic as we think they are. They are based on completely conscious and unconscious biases that define what opportunities people are going to have, what business programs we're going to follow. And when people start sort of deconstructing that and start centering the work on issues of race, gender, ability, when you start thinking about how those things show up every day in your life, that becomes real. I mean, listen, if it was easy, we would have fixed it a long time ago. Because I get the sense that people are always looking for a silver bullet, right? So now all of a sudden I read about the Rooney Rule and how, you know, the NFL came up with this idea that for every head coach or they need to have at least one candidate of color to go alongside. And now that's being applied to tech. Yeah. And it, I understand why people like it because it feels very neat. Yeah. And it's like, I get it. Mm-hmm. I, I can it's apply actionable. this rule, yes, <laughs> and then everything will be okay. And that's mm-hmm. not really how it works. No, because you're, again, you're checking off these boxes, and you're not looking at the systemic issues that are impacting all the decisioning. And and when people hear systems, they're just like, okay, Daisy, you just lost me. This this is too big. This is too much. This is what I learned in, in tech, and I loved it. It's like if you're not attacking the root cause of where you're at, all you're doing is sort of you know pruning the tree and making it look somewhat cute. The Rooney Rule, as well intended as it is, but unless it becomes fully integrated into your processes and your structures, it's not successful. Rooney Rule, that's great. When you think about fairness and consistency in your hiring process, that's how you start changing the needle. But you have to really look at it systemically, thoughtfully, consistently, and and frankly, iterate as it comes. But personal question, not yeah. not personal about you, but, yeah. but I go to a lot of events that are diversity events. And I would I would loosely categorize them two different ways. One, you either have a, a lot of the actual corporate execs there and you have minority candidates or representatives of each organization sort of feels a little bit like you're being trotted around to be like, and here's our Latina. And, yes. you know, yeah. um, and then there are ones where it's a lot of Hispanics in the room or a lot of African-Americans in the room mm-hmm. and we're networking with each other. Do those events serve a purpose? They do. But again, it depends in what context. And it depends like, well, how on how do I maximize that event? So, listen, we host targeted and curated events all the time to introduce diverse talent to our executives. Because the fact of the matter is, is that they're not in each other's networks. And unless people know who you are, you're not going to be considered for a role. It's plain and simple. By the time a job description is written, the house is on fire. They need to put someone into that role, and they're going to go to the shortcuts, the mental shortcuts that they know, even with the best of intentions. So a lot of those events are intended to help add additional data points of folks that you wouldn't 
that you wouldn't know. So how you maximize that as the person of color who's being <laughs> sent around? It's like you build genuine relationships. This isn't about just telling everyone how cool you are. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this is still about building relationships and making sure that your brand and your story is one that you're shaping, not that's being shaped by somebody else. Now, the other events, which are the events, you know, I, I call them our people events. You know, <laughs> these are the events where you go and you're comfortable. I was like, frankly, those those are for me. They're more around joy. And again, it's it depends on the event and. And I always tell folks, be really strategic. Just as you have to be strategic about the friendships that you make, the partnerships that you build, be strategic about the events that you go to and what you're going to do when you're there. I'm a mother of a nine-year-old. I'm not out and about every night. I try to go to, a, at a maximum, two events a week. That's what I try to do so that I can you know, put my little girl to bed. And so those events that I go to, I'm really mindful and thoughtful about what am I getting personally and what am I getting professionally from them. I have a Latino-specific question for you, which is I, when I was at HuffPost Live, I sat next to Mark Lamont Hill. Yeah. And Mark is, is very tapped into the black community. He's a professor. He is an on-air personality. I don't think I'm exaggerating because this happens so many times. I could ask him for contact information for almost any black celebrity, newsmaker, athlete. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll text them for mm-hmm. you. And and both that he had had exposure to them, that they had a culture between the two of them of sharing contact information. And, and perhaps I'm just not charming people the right way, but I don't feel like we have cultivated that culture in the Latino community. No, we're, we're too siloed. And we've suffered from that. You know me. I'm I'm a natural connector, so I'm I'm constantly like, how many how many people can I put in front of you, and how many folks can I connect you with? And there are a lot of us in the Latino community, but we haven't figured it out, and we haven't done it as thoughtfully. And but we also haven't done it for as long as mm-hmm. the Black community has has done it, and as strategically as as it has been done. I think that's one of our biggest weaknesses, and I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of mini. as there are in the African-American community. But for Latinos, there's these geographic differences, there's these national differences, and there's these class and even color differences within our community that we have to grapple with before we really build a unified sense of these are the folks that are going to connect us and build familia. I think that your generation, and I feel really old when I say that, but but I really do think that your generation is is looking and speaking to this in a different way than, than older generations before me. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in Pampers Swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. 
at 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. I learned a lot about you prepping for this interview that I did not know, including that your parents had you when they were teens. They were young when they had you. And so you were raised by your dad's parents in the DR in Santo Domingo. You went to an international school, which sounds very fancy, but you did not come from a very fancy family. And I wonder that experience of being, I get the impression, more working class, more middle class and going to a school with more affluent children. Did you know that you were different? I did. You know, it's interesting. I've known difference my entire life, but I didn't code it as different. And so I grew up with my grandparents, which already made me someone that was different. All my friends had parents that were far younger, although my parents were really young. And this is something else you, you didn't know. My grandmother was 35 when I was born. What? And that was the age. Wait, that was I'm sorry. The age. I know. I just blew out the mic. That was, that was my age when I had my daughter. <laughs> So, yeah, so I turned that, 35 in July. That yes. is terrifying. My, so my up until my generation, my family was extremely young. Um, so while age-wise, my grandparents were not that much older than other parents, they had lived through so much more than the parents of my friends. So I grew up with that difference. And then on top of that, I went to one of the elite schools in the island. And whereas most of my friends were kids of, you know, international diplomats and, you know, large business owners in the island. And so these were the kids that I grew up with. And so we weren't we weren't as fixated on class as we were on nationality and language and that type of difference. And so I played that insider outsider of being technically Dominican, yet I was half Puerto Rican because my mother's Puerto Rican. I didn't have a chauffeur that picked me up. I actually got taken to school and back by one of my teachers every day who lived across the street from me. Um, and yet I was part of all the big social quinceañeras. I was part of all of the big events that happened. And while that there was a difference that existed, there was never really friction behind it. There was just this acknowledgement of I'm in today and I'm not in, and yet I can flex between these two spaces. Flexing is a good way of, of putting it. And then you moved to the States when you're how old? I was uh, 16, uh, starting my junior year of high school. I moved in October, and I always remember that because I moved a couple of weeks before Halloween, and I had never experienced an American Halloween. <laughs> I'm just, for some reason, I'm fixated with the images of people dressing up and going to get candy from people's houses, which was a very strange cultural experience for me. Um, and that's the month that I moved in 1988. Yeah, that's a weird welcome to America. Yes, yes. I had a lot of weird welcomes to America. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Um, well, I was introduced to racism really quickly when I moved to the U.S. I went to high school in New Jersey, as mm -hmm. you pointed out. One of my New, favorite things about you. New Milford, New Jersey. Um, and I went to New Milford High School. And within a month of being in the high school, I befriended the one biracial kid. Of course I would. Um, the one biracial kid that was on, ca uh, on campus. Yeah, she's uh, 
brandy, uh, black and white. Um, and I befriended her through a terrible experience, and we were both being berated by a skinhead. Uh, it was like some, you know, something that I had no knowledge of before. In New Jersey? In New Jersey, yeah. This this young kid, and frankly, when you think about it now, just a troubled kid that was trying to, you know, find who she was, but. Um, she would just berate me with racial slurs that, quite frankly, I didn't even know were racial <laughs> slurs, but I knew they were mean, knew they were horrible. And it was both to me and to Brandy. Um, and I remember telling my dad one day, there's this girl that's being mean to me. I'm, you know, I'm not happy to be in the States. I'm not happy to be here. You took me from the one place that I know. And as I started describing her, yeah, my dad's like, well, you know, what does this girl look like? What's wrong with her? And I was like, well, you know, she's her head is shaved and she wears leather all the time and black lipstick. Like, who does that? And my dad's eyes just like opened up and he was like, oh, expletive. <laughs> I need to go to the school and take care of you. And within a day, you know, had meetings with counselors and the kid eventually got expelled from school. That's much more extreme than what I thought we were going to talk about, <laughs> which is all of a sudden being Hispanic. Oh, when yeah. you when you like because if you if, I imagine that if you grow up in the DR you don't really understand that that's like a whole box that you can be put in. No, uh, the term Hispanic was completely unknown to me until I moved to the states, and so and 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 I I was put in a box that was defined by others. And as I started building a definition of what it meant outside of sort of the you know the traditional definition, it was clear to me that it was I was being put in a box of a homogeneous group of folks um, that were thought of as low socioeconomic background, low educational attainment. And none of those were experiences that I grew up with. I grew up with a rich variety of Hispanic images around me of success and power and, and lack of, the full variety of the human experience. And moving to the States and being put in this box was was at, at, at its extreme really limiting and painful. And on another, on another hand, it seemed to be liberating me to you know, figure out what my identity was and, and really forcing me to think about, okay, then if you're Hispanic in this country, what does that mean and, and who are you? And so I fought it for a long time. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was thought of more as the international kid. Um, and I was immediately put into English AP courses and, you know, all these advanced courses because I had been in this really great educational environment before. And I remember my English teacher, with Mr. Smith, with all his kindness, he would berate the other students every once in a while and say, I can't believe even the international kid knows English better than all of you. <laughs> and I would look at him and kind of go like, you're not winning me any friends right now, Mr. Smith. But thank you so much. Appreciate the kindness you're kind of throwing my way. Um, uh, but at that point, I was more international, and it wasn't until my senior year when that Hispanic term really started sticking, and it was when we were all getting accepted to colleges. And, you know, everyone was competing for who was getting into more better schools, and I was in the top 10% of the class, and so you, you're you dealing with really smart kids. And I remember once one of um, Mac, again, a, a good kid, good intent, but, you know, just didn't know what he was saying. He just sort of turned to me. He's like, oh, you're going to get into all the schools you get into because of affirmative action. You're Hispanic. I have to tell you, Alicia, I didn't know what affirmative action was at that point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this term Hispanic kept on being floated around to me. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm Dominican. I'm Puerto Rican. That's my identity. This is who, this is who I am. And by the way, I got better grades than you. So, of course, I'm going to get into school, into any program that I get into. But that sense of belittlement um, and, again, being put into that box, that started for me really in my senior year. And, you know, and I grew to understand what my place was in American society. But I also grew... You know, unhappy and and a bit rebellious with not only me being placed in this corner, but these brilliant kids that I knew being placed in these boxes and labels that I thought dehumanized them and frankly limited their opportunity. So that's where 
in addition to being, you know, in the social justice college and, you know, <laughs> deciding to, you know, deciding to major in international relations and women's studies, which to this day, my father was like, there's like, what, what kind of job can you get with that? But I had this liberty and this freedom to, and I used it to the best of my ability to kind of just explore what all of this meant. So, you know, I'm a women's studies major too. Oh, I love it. Yes. And it was the same exact conversation, especially when you have parents, you know, my mom went to school and became a nurse. My father went to school and then later became an attorney, but largely because they had grown up working class and wanted to make sure that they had professional jobs. And so when I think back on it, it probably was scary to say, I'm going for the most humanitarian, humanitarian <laughs> degree, humanity degree there is. Yes, there is. They're like, what is that? My dad's a doorman at the Grand Hyatt Hotel. My aunt's a teacher. That's it professionally for my family. And when they think of the amazing investment that they made in my education, their vision for me was that I was going to be president. You know, <laughs> the story that I say often, actually, my daughter just wrote a piece about it for her school the other day, was that you know my grandmother taught me nothing in the kitchen, in the home. And she was really intentional about that. And when my grandfather would complain about me not being able to do anything in the home, she would always remind him, I was like, she doesn't have to because she's going to be a professional one day. You know, they, their concept was always that I was not going to be homebound, but I was whatever I was going to do was going to be something that was going to be really big for them. But big means standard and practical and revenue earning. And I did not do that until, you know, way past grad school, <laughs> way past, you know, a fellowship that I did. I was just drawn to what felt human to me. And I was drawn to what, where I could make an impact. I just didn't define that for many years. We can look at it retrospectively and say, like, oh, it all adds up and it all makes sense. And all these life experiences point you in this direction. But, like, the job at Moody's, which really is your first professional job, that was a family friend saw something in you and gave you that job. Yeah. Every opportunity I've ever had has in some one way or another been influenced by someone special in my life. And my dad's friend, Ali Sistani, who I adore, Ali had moved to the States when uh, during the Iran-Contra. He's Iranian when um, nobody wanted to give a job to any Iranians. And here's a PhD in economics. Um, so he ended up being a doorman at the Grand Hyatt Hotel with my dad. Um, they became lifelong friends. He eventually was able to leave that job and become an analyst at Moody's and become a very senior analyst there. And at one point, my father was bemoaning me not having a job at a barbecue at home. And Ali turned to him and goes, we hire kids just like Daisy with master's in public administration. Just give me her resume. And four months later, I have a job at Moody's. And it was thanks again to you know this kind human being who put my resume in front of the folks at Moody's. And it was also, I've always thanked Nicole Johnson, who retired recently. And Nicole is a gay woman who had a sensitivity to diversity at a time that people weren't really thinking about this. And she saw this opportunity to build a team as her opportunity to diversify the public finance department. And she built sort of the small ecosystem, all of us from different racial and economic backgrounds, nationalities, I mean, you name it. She brought these brilliant folks, some of which are still super, super senior leaders at Moody's and others who have gone on to amazing careers. And so I always say I was hired at Moody's through the vision of Ali and the kindness of Nicole Johnson. Because there's what you learn at a place like that in terms of the actual hard skills. And then there's what I would argue is the even more important stuff, which is just that corporate language and that corporate culture. Who walks into the meeting first? Who sits where at the table? And if you don't grow up with people who do that type of work, 
it's hard not to feel like you walk into those spaces and everyone's speaking a different language. Well, they, they are. I tell folks, no one gives you a Dakota ring when you enter into a corporation that helps you figure out the cultural nuances of a place. And every organization, every company I've worked for has a completely different cultural behaviors, accepted norms. I walked into Moody's knowing nothing other than, you know, I knew nothing, actually. <laughs> Let's just be clear. I knew nothing. <laughs> and I stumbled. I stumbled my, my first couple of years. But I benefited from the kindness of folks who recognized me stumbling but recognized potential in me. That's why recognizing potential in others is so important to me because I've been the beneficiary of it. The whole concept that you raised around not even who, who speaks, where they sit in the room, um, who has an opportunity to speak first. I have to say, and I've said this often, I was the beneficiary of not just the kindness of others, but of being in a place and building my professional understanding and, and language in a place where, while not perfect, it was based on this meritocratic, everyone has a vote. And it doesn't matter your level. It doesn't matter um, you know, where you sit in the organization. What matters is your ability to be able to support your decision. And so very early on, I had to learn to find a voice. And I learned eventually that I didn't have a voice walking in. I honed my voice by watching others. Um, a, someone who became a very good friend, uh, Bart, and if Bart ever hears this, he'll, he'll recognize this. I was in a meeting once where I didn't say anything. And afterwards, Bart turned me to the side with kindness, but... Um, but very intentionally and said, you don't get paid to not have an opinion here. You're here to express your opinion. And I remember looking at him sort of shaking, and I said, I was like, I was worried. I don't know if I was going to be right. He goes, it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. It matters whether you can create a convincing argument about what you're delivering. I was like, and if you, if you believe in yourself and if you believe in what outcome you're trying to achieve, you'll be able to do that. And that was the first time that somebody really thoughtfully and, and sternly sat me down and said, I was like, you're not here to just be pretty. And you're not here to just, you know, do everybody's bidding. You're really here to contribute. And ever since that day, I found my voice and then I just never shut up. <laughs> well, and it's there that you started doing diversity work. Yes. Yeah. It was uh, nine years into being in the company. Um, I was a credit risk analyst for six. And six years into that role, when I was thinking of leaving and trying to think about, uh, you know, you, you reach this point where you're either going to be a marquee analyst for the rest of your career, or I was actually going to pursue, you know, that dream of saving the world that I had when I was an undergrad. I got a call one day from our head of HR. We're creating a diversity and inclusion function. And he didn't go as far as saying we have no idea what we're doing, but they had no idea what they were doing. And we hear that you're passionate about this. You know, why don't you put your name in the hat for this role? And this was the first time at, at Moody's I had had an amazing career up until that time. I had been promoted every couple of years. I had been given opportunities every couple of years. But this was the first time where something was put in front of me where I was scared. I was like, wait a second. I've never done this. HR is the function that everyone's afraid of. Um, so why am I going to go into a function that I know anything about? And frankly, it was a senior position that was going to give me exposure, and, and I was afraid. And so I initially didn't – I didn't say no. I didn't answer um, for about a week. And our CFO, Linda, came to me one day and said, so I hear that you haven't accepted this role. Um, and I was just like, wait, you know who I am? <laughs> I was like, what are you doing here? And, and she told me, she's like, I put your name in the hat for that role. Um, when I put your name in a hat for something, you don't say no to it. And that was my first experience with sponsorship, not even knowing what sponsorship was, not even recognizing that this senior leader in the organization even knew who I was or what value I brought to the organization. But she told me the story and she said, listen, I've been watching you. And I would present at board meetings around our, uh, our philanthropy work. I was like, you do all the work. 
you really care about this. At that point also, I was the only one that was going to the black MBA conferences, the Hispanic MBA conferences, the Asian MBA conferences. So I was the only one who really cared. Um, and I said yes. And that was, that was the beginning of what I believe has been you know, the most transformative experience of my life and where I found my purpose. I, I heard you in a, another interview say about your family, everything I do is to make them proud. I know exactly what you mean. And yet that's a lot to carry around. It is. Right? It, is. it feels like every... I'm getting emotional when you're saying <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because it's it's so true. Mm-hmm. It's so mm-hmm. shared yeah. among us. Yes. And yet it's heavy in a way that's that, that can make little decisions or, or medium-sized decisions. Like, do I take this job or not that job? Feel big. And it is big. It is big. Um, I do. I always think of myself as, you know my father's daughter and you know my grandmother and my grandfather's granddaughter like that these are the the things that I carry with me and and I try to think about it less as heavy and weighty and more as freedom and you know an opportunity my dad cries half of the time when he's talking about me because <laughs> he's so proud and that that brings me so much joy. I've made some choices, Alicia, that have not made my parents happy. You know, leaving Google is one of those choices where, like, the entire world is like, why would you ever leave Google? And I was really frank with my father. I was like, I, you know, I needed to be back home. I needed to find my joy. I needed to do the work that I know is going to be most impactful. And I knew that I could do it somewhere else. And that's, frankly, all I needed to say to him. And at the end, fundamentally, our parents put a lot of pressure on us. But if you just dissect all of the external societal images and brands that people expect of us, all they really want from us is to be happy. And if that happiness comes in the form of doing, you know, a job that is you know, less glamorous and less exciting, that I think is completely acceptable in my family. But where's the freedom? The freedom is, I think a lot of folks feel that you're 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 like I can only be this person because this is who my family expects me to be and this is what I'm supposed to give to my family but when you really explore beyond that you can be so many different things and still give so much to your family and I think we get stuck in this like the only thing I can do in this world is xyz and I need to make this much money by this age and whatnot for me it's just my freedom comes from knowing I'm going to be okay regardless because I've built that financial stability for myself but I also know that going forward in my career, for me, it's about finding my highest and best purpose. And my highest and best purpose may be something that could be incongruous to what my parents ever believed my job would be. But if my highest and best purpose makes me happy, helps me raise a healthy and wonderful human being that I am with my daughter, and helps me have a healthy relationship with my husband, that ultimately, the freedom in, like I know that it brings my family joy and that I am serving them in doing that. Thank you so much, Daisy. Thank you. That's it for now, but we want to hear from you. Email us at latina to latina at bustle.com. Send us ideas for awesome guests or whatever it is you're thinking about right now. Remember to subscribe to Latina to Latina on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you.
Latina to Latina is produced by Lentigua Williams & Co., mixed by Oluwakemi Aladasui with assistance from Anna Parsons. Our executive editor is Emily Ann Epstein. Our editorial supervisor is Roseanne Salvatore. And we got to give a special thank you to Jenny Hollander. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.